This is the sixth time I've asked you to open to Ephesians chapter 1. And in preparation for the supper, I want to look at the second half of verse 7 down through verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Last week we dealt with the first part of verse 7, where we are told there that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, resulting in the forgiveness of our sins. The second part of the verse says that this accords, or according to, the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now that portion of verses comes to us in this larger Revelation of God that details for us the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's work in our redemption. Last week we saw that our redemption was necessary because of sin. We have fallen into sin and we necessarily stood in need of a redemption. We have a great Redeemer. He shed his blood which pointed to the price of of our redemption. We see there in verse 7 that only in Jesus Christ, in Him, He is the person of our redemption. In being the redeemed of God, this results in our sins being forgiven as far as the East is from the West. So it's the second half of verse 7 that we pick up with today. And it tells us that all of this has been done according to the riches of his grace. And for the next few minutes, I want to consider that phrase with you. The riches of God's grace. All that the Father has done for us, he has done for us in grace. Not an ounce of it is in response to anything that we've earned. Anything that our works have merited before him. So let's pray together and we'll look at these verses. Father, we come. Lord, we pray humbly that you would open our understanding. Lord, help us to see more of the beauties of our redemption. Help us to see more of the grace that you have so freely bestowed upon us. Help us to see that you have acted toward us perfectly in accord with the very riches of your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you would, center on that phrase with me for the next few moments. We have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Paul uses this word riches a couple of times, four times actually, in the book of Ephesians. It's here in verse 7. It's also, if you were to skip forward, in the seventh verse of the second chapter. And there we read that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace 
in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the second use of the term really is just a reiteration of what he says here in verse 7. Also in chapter 3 there in verse 8, he says, speaking of himself, It was to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the first two times, it's the riches of God's grace. The third time, it is the riches in Christ, or the riches of Christ. And then you get down into the 16th verse of this same third chapter. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So we have the first two references. The riches of his grace. The second reference. The riches of Christ himself. And then the last there in verse 16. It is the riches of his glory. So when we put all of these together, grace, Christ, and glory, these are the things, along with so many more, that our Father is rich in, that he has made known to us. Everything that he has done, it's important to notice the distinction. A distinction is made that the scripture says that these things have been in accordance with God's riches Not out of his riches. If I had a bucket full of quarters and I reached in and gave everyone a quarter, I would be giving to you out of the riches of the bucket. And if I dispensed enough of those quarters, eventually my bucket would be empty. That's not the way that God is given. He's not given out of, he's given in accordance with. And in that sense, we're told here that his grace... Christ himself and his glory are inexhaustible. That's why we could say the things that we said last week, that saints through the ages have gloried in these truths and have been recipients of the grace of God, yet his grace has not been diminished in the least. The blood of Christ is sufficient for saints of of every age, and yet the blood of Christ has not lost any of its sufficiency whatsoever. And the same would would apply to the glory of God himself and the way Paul used the term there in the 16th verse of the third chapter. I read this week Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge is an old writer, but he's so helpful on many things. He's got a commentary on the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He has one on Ephesians, and I'm, I'm reading it in conjunction with preaching these verses. And he gave a definition of the riches of God's grace that I want to share with you. And I, and I hope if you're taking notes, I'm going to say this slowly so you can write it down. You shorthand, do something and get this down on paper so you can go back later and read it. The riches of God's grace. Charles Hodge says, this is the overflowing abundance of unmerited love. Inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. Let me read that a little faster, put it all together. 
This is the overflowing abundance of unmerited love, which is inexhaustible in God. His bucket has no bottom, and it is freely accessible through Jesus Christ. This is the very riches of God's grace. Everything that he has done for us that we have read and studied so far to this point in Ephesians chapter 1 has been done according to these riches. The riches of his grace. We've been reminded at every turn and we'll continue to be reminded as we study this book that this grace comes to us freely. We cannot purchase it. We cannot work for it. It is unmerited, overflowing abundance of unmerited love. Like, like the, the song that we just sang. Nothing in our hands we bring. We stand before God in this matter of being justified in his sight empty handed. And those hands are dirty at that. We stand with, with righteous works which are in God's sight as nothing but filthy rags. But yet he has overflowed in abundance this unmerited love toward us. So when we consider free grace, free grace is extended to men through Christ and flows from the very heart of God. That's what these verses teach us. And so we can say indeed, along with John, God has indeed so loved the world. And he's done so freely. Free grace, the free offering of the gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl. Come to Christ, buy, come and eat and purchase with no money. Do so freely. This is in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Not to misunderstand, grace is free to all men, but grace costs. A great price, beginning with the humbling of the Son of God. He was incarnate, giving up all of the attributes that he had before with God or the access to those attributes. Gave himself to be crucified on the cross. Again, I'm going to give you a couple of things from Charles Hodge. He says here, this grace consists of, first of all, providing, providing, prefigured with Abraham on the mountain with his son, about to take the knife, interrupted by God's provision of another sacrifice. This unmerited love, which comes to us in an overflow of abundance, was provided by God himself. But think of the next part of this. Not only did he provide it, he accepted it as full atonement, which speaks to the value of the sacrifice that he did provide. And then thirdly, he bestowed redemption based upon the worth of the sacrifice. How often we get this confused. How often we say it's the worth of of the one redeemed. When in all actuality. It is the worth of the redeemer. Amen. That makes grace. 
the grace of the Bible. And then lastly, he reminds us, as so many, and I don't know who this is original to, certainly not me, the acrostic of the word grace. When you think of that, and you take each letter in that word, and you apply a word to it, grace is in every way to be considered God's riches at Christ's expense. We get the full riches of God, pardoning, redeeming grace, but at the expense of His own Son. So the second part of this verse, it is according to the riches of His grace. Now notice, Paul goes on here and he says, which He made abound toward us. And to understand the verse rightly, Carry the word grace over. And it is the grace which he made abound toward us. He has made it known to us. The word abound here literally means to overflow. And probably most of you have heard of or possibly even read John Bunyan's great work, Pilgrim's Progress. Did you know he had another great work? Which is called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Which is, his, which is his own personal testimony of salvation. How the Lord opened his heart to understand these things. He uses this word abounding, which means to overflow. And what a great word, what a great illustration we have here. When we are converted, when we are regenerate, when grace comes to us, think of this. It overflows or overcrowds the hearts of those upon whom God has set his affection in Christ. There was a point in time in your life, though you may not be able to go to this specific time, date, none of that. But there was a point in time in your life, some of you can, when grace, when the grace of God completely overflowed in your life. It pushed everything else out. And again, we can take the author of the book of Ephesians as exhibit A. There's a reason, I think, why we're told of Paul's conversion not just once, but several times over in the Scriptures. To magnify the grace of God. To show how in time the grace of God came and just pushed everything else out. And it just overflowed Paul's heart. You think of David. Didn't David write this in the 23rd Psalm? What does he say about his cup? He says, my cup is too small. It won't hold everything that the Lord is giving me. My cup overflows. There he's using a reference to you know, God's great provision and blessing of him in abundance. But certainly it's an image that serves us well when we think about the grace of God coming and overflowing or overcrowding our hearts. And how so? What has this done? Not only has it resulted in our being the beneficiaries and recipients of all Christ's work, all of his merits in our place. But Paul is very specific when he says that this grace has abounded toward us in two ways, in wisdom and prudence. There's two ways really we could understand this. Either this is the wisdom and prudence of God that has made his grace abound. Some take it that way. Or you can take it that the wisdom, or excuse me, the grace of God has overflowed into our hearts and lives, producing wisdom and prudence where there once was none in our lives. That's the way I understand it. 
I think that's the, the majority most understand it in that way. The riches of his grace have abounded toward us in wisdom. Notice the qualifier, all. All wisdom and prudence. Let's try to define these two words if we can. Because they're, they're moving somewhere. That's why I think they apply to us necessarily and not God. Because they are, they are making known something to us that God has already known from all eternity past. Namely, his will and the verses that follow. So first, wisdom is to be defined as the knowledge that sees into the heart of things which knows them as they really are. Prudence, on the other hand. Prudence, alternate words could be discernment, insight, practical wisdom. The right application of true knowledge or wisdom. Sometimes these words get reversed. But nevertheless, if you look at the original, these, these uh, definitions bear themselves out. So prudence could be defined as this in this way. The understanding which leads to right action. So the first is right understanding. The second is acting right in light of that understanding. You put them together as Paul has done. Wisdom here is the intellectual knowledge. Prudence, on the other hand, is understanding. And I love what Curtis Vaughn says about this definition. He says, with one, God satisfies our mind, wisdom. With the other, he satisfies our hand. And he leads us into right conduct. These two things are married together all throughout the scriptures. Knowledge held rightly always leads to prudence or discernment, how to use it, how to use what we now have been taught of God. And here again, we have been taught of God. He has abounded these things into our hearts and minds. If you keep reading the verse, verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will. So here we've run into another word that comes up over and over in the book of Ephesians. Not just riches, but the word mystery. Six times in this book of Ephesians, Paul uses this word mystery. And in the biblical use, it means a secret that was previously concealed that would have never been known if the Lord had not revealed it. Most often when we think of the mystery, we think of the way Paul uses it in the third chapter. Where he refers to the mystery of God. And now that the Gentiles or the pagans are brought in to be fellow heirs along with the Jews. That's the point of the third chapter. And that's most often the way that we think of this mystery of God. The middle wall of separation. That which separated Jew and Gentile. Paul tells us in the gospel of Jesus Christ... That middle wall has been torn down. And now both, if they are saved, they are saved in Christ and in Christ alone. But here when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not referencing, he's not looking forward just yet to that middle wall of separation being dismantled and torn down. 
The word does still mean the same, a secret which is concealed and could not be made known unless and cannot be known unless the Lord makes it known. But notice how broad this is here in verse nine. And follow the train of thought of Paul, if we can. In all wisdom and prudence, the Lord has abounded toward us, having made known to us the mystery of his will. And this is not just the generic, what we might refer to as the generic will of God. Paul is very specific. But before he tells us what it is, he tells us that it is according to his good pleasure. God has made it known because he is benevolently sovereign. He is not withholding this information from his children. And what information he is making known. Look at the end of the verse. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So let's deal with these words individually to try to understand what Paul means. The word dispensation. It's used in two different ways in the scripture. And it depends upon the context, how we understand it. When it refers to someone who is in authority, like God is in authority here, it refers to a scheme or a plan. When it refers to someone under authority, like Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he uses the word there, he's referencing his stewardship as being involved in this overarching plan or scheme of God. So it's the first way that Paul is using it here. He's referencing and he is speaking of the overarching plan of God for all things. He's given us great detail about our own conversion and redemption in and through Christ's blood. But now he is telling us of a greater, larger, on a much larger scale, the will of God concerning all things. And notice he says this scheme or this plan Corresponds to the fullness of the times. And I think that's Paul's way of saying the end of days, when things are consummated together, when the days are complete. Now, notice how far Paul has gone, and he's just, notice we're just down to verse 9 and 10. Of Ephesians chapter 1. He has spanned the whole scope of eternity. He's told us back up in the third and fourth verses. That we have been blessed in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Having been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. As far as our finite minds can go back into eternity past. There we find God operative. In his creation. But hit fast forward, if you will, and go as far as you can the other direction into eternity future. And Paul tells us in the dispensation of the fullness of the times. In other words, in the end. What's going to happen? He is going to get he is 
that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are which, are which are on earth in him. Paul is going to tell us very plainly the end of chapter 1. Christ is the head of the church. What he's telling us here in the middle of chapter 1 is that Christ will be recognized as the head of all creation. He is the head of all creation now. He's holding everything together. In him all things consist, but he's not yet recognized in this way. That's why both Isaiah and Paul, Paul is really quoting Isaiah in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that there is a coming time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's referencing this, this point in time that he is telling us here in Ephesians 1. In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, Jesus Christ will be recognized in his rightful place by all of creation as being Lord. That does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. That does not lead us into a universalist theology which basically says everyone is going to be saved. We can say that because there is just too many other references in scripture that teach us otherwise. But I want you to notice some, another word. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together. This great ingathering. The word literally means to unite. Some of your translations may even use that word. I think this points to the sinfulness of sin. If all things have to be reunited and brought together... And if God's original creation was good, and he pronounced it good over and over and over again, then enter sin in Genesis 3, what happened? God's creation was scattered. And we can say that because even Paul says it in Romans chapter 8, that all of creation is now groaning. We can go back to the curse in Genesis chapter 3 and see the curse that is placed upon creation. And then here in, in Ephesians 1, so much of the mind and the heart and the will of God is being made known here in Ephesians chapter 1. But here, peculiarly, we find this small look into what is going to happen in the end. Everything is going to come back together unto the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Where he is reigning, yes, but where he is the recognized head. Where every knee is in submission to him. Where every tongue is professing and confessing him as Lord. Unto the glory of God the Father. I want you to think of this. This has helped me this week as I thought about this word. And studied this word gather together. You think of an army. A vast army. That in the midst of conflict. Gets so scattered and distant from one another. And your mind may have to go back to. To the day and age when 
wars were fought on the ground with men marching. And by the end of the battle, the men are so scattered out. They may be miles apart. But yet the battle has come to an end. And the trumpet blows. And that's the signal for them to reunite, to begin gathering again. The battle is over. There has been a declared winner. And so come back together. Reassemble yourselves as the army of whomever. That's the imagery that is given here when Paul says, In the end, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that God is going to gather together, and you can place the word there again, if you will, in one, all things in Christ. Everything that has been scattered in God's creation because of sin. In the end, when the trumpet of God blows, coming back together and they will recognize Jesus Christ as the rightful Lord and head of all things. And this squares with everything in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. We're told that Jesus Christ is all in all. We're told that he is the beginning and the end. We're told that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says of himself as he reveals himself to John in the revelation that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And in the end, on the last day, the dispensation of the fullness of the time, when the time is full... Everything is going to be gathered back together under him. So what we have in this first chapter of Ephesians. Christ is the head of everything. And he is particularly the head of his church. Do you see how that leads us to the praise of the glory of his grace? You see how everything not just in Ephesians 1. Everything in your Bible is pointing to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is pointing to the glory of our Redeemer. I had a conversation just before our service started about the mysterious way in which the Old Testament saints were saved. They're saved just the same way as you and I, by faith, looking forward to the coming one. We say we are saved by faith and looking back. We have biblical revelation. How privileged are we to be on this side of the cross where we don't just read the prophets who were speaking dimly. The prophets who, yes, foretold and prophesied the coming and death of Messiah. But we have four accounts given to us by God of the sufferings of our Savior. All that he endured on our account, on our behalf, so that we could be made right in the sight of a holy God. That's what this supper commemorates. That's what we are remembering. The high cost of our redemption. How can we not see the glory of Jesus Christ as we read this chapter, as we read our Bible? In the end, 
Creation's groaning will be over. Paul tells us in Romans 8, creation is awaiting the liberty of the sons of God. I'm going to read verses 11 through verses 11 and 12, but we'll come back to them next week. It just keeps getting better. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So verse 11, we talked about this in our first hour. Verse 11 is in the scriptures one of the most complete overarching statements of of God's sovereignty being worked out in this world. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And when we finish with verse 12 next week, we will finish with the section of this chapter that deals with the part of the Son of God in our redemption. Those first six verses tell us of the Father's work. This is His, this is his plan, His initiative. Verses 7 through 12 tell us what the Son actually did in time, shedding His own blood. And lest we think that all of this happens without man having to respond to the gospel, notice what verse 13 says. In him you also trusted when, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And it all ends for the third time over, saying, to the praise of his glory. The wisdom of God shoved and compacted into 14 verses. And aren't we thankful that verse 13 says, in him you trusted After you heard the word of truth. It's true that we were elect of God before the foundation of the world. But it's not true that we believed before the foundation of the world. Is this somewhat mysterious? Absolutely. But the testimony of scripture is no one is saved. Until they put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. In this life. And in this life only. The writer of Hebrews says it's appointed for men for a man to die. And that once. What comes next? Judgment. So it's imperative. In the biblical scheme, in God's economy, in his dispensation, remember that word means his his overarching plan or scheme. It's imperative in God's economy for you to be saved. You hear the gospel 
And you respond in faith. You respond in belief. You respond trusting in him. You respond turning from your sin to Christ. You will not be saved otherwise. You must come to him. So let me pray and we'll observe the supper together. Our Father, we're thankful again for these verses in Ephesians where you are making and have made known to us so greatly all of the riches of your grace, all of the wisdom that you have, or the grace that you have made abound toward us in wisdom and prudence. We're thankful for this communion, this supper that we are now about to partake of that reminds us in visible form of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his broken body. We pray you would add your blessing to it. For Christ's sake, amen.